0: Well, hello Ecclesia, Pastor Ian Graham here, and uh, what I have today is a re-record of a message that I preached in the park, and it's sort of a re-record because I had a bit of a um, fiasco happen for me. I, I woke up on Sunday morning, and typically what I do is I try to really, uh, really intuit, really get the message down inside of me so that I can not rely on my notes too much, but also just really... Proclaim it with a a level that I think uh, the text deserves. And on Sunday, I went through a lot of those processes, but I I realized, I was like, I'm going to have to rely on my notes a lot today. And through the course of events, as we're meeting outside, uh, I put my notes on an iPad so I don't have a bunch of paper because it can be windy outside. So I put my notes on an iPad, and I looked down after I got through the intro, which I was really, really strong on. And then realized that my iPad said it was too hot and that it was not going to open up for me. And so I, I think Jesus was glorified. I think that there were some clear points made. But I also realized that the, this message might be much more uh, concise and sharp and clear. So I hope that's the case. But we're continuing our series on the book of Acts called Cathedrals. And our story today from Acts chapter 5 is one of those stories that, frankly, I wish wasn't in the Bible, because I'm not completely sure what to do with it. It's not clear to me whether this story is some kind of object lesson on how there was still sin and brokenness present within the earliest church, and how how truly interwoven the church is. We are not uh, just a bunch of individuals. We are a collective before God. It's not clear to me whether this is some sort of ominous warning to take God seriously or to not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can, in fact, lie to God, or if it's some combination of all of those things. But regardless of my own preferences, my own sensitivities, my, my own interpretive biases, here is this story. In, in the midst of this beautiful movement that was the earliest church, This movement where God has been just showing up in such profound ways. The people have been marked by God's presence. And yet, here, sticking out like a sore thumb, we have this story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so today, I think we have quite a task ahead of us. How do we excavate? You see, my conviction, pastorally, is that there is beauty, goodness, and truth in every corner of the scriptures, that Jesus is magnified. We have to learn how do we put on our interpretive lenses to see everything in the light of the cross. And so I want, I want to start with just a couple of principles that I think are important. And I think also important questions that this passage raises. Uh, first, to me, the most obvious question that this passage urges us to ask is, frankly, does God kill people? At a quick glance of this story... It would seem like that's what's happening here. These two people have conspired to lie to God, but God knows the secrets of every person, and as they lie to the community, God judges them, and they fall down dead. Now, can you imagine you're in a church meeting, and all of a sudden somebody drops dead? Like, I don't think anybody's coming back that next week. Now, there's another question that follows that I think is equally as pressing. I mean, at the end of the day, Ananias and Sapphira tell a lie. And it's somewhat of a gentle lie. They've sold a piece of property and decided to donate the proceeds to the church. But their fault comes in because they don't donate the whole of the pro- the proceeds and they claim that they did. And so still they're still giving to the church. And Peter points this out. He says, Listen, nobody made you sell the property. No one told you to give the proceeds to the church. While you had all these things at your disposal, you could do what you wanted with them. And so we have this very, what seems like a really harsh response. Why is there no mercy for these two people? And I won't speak for you all but I thank God that I haven't dropped dead at every uttering of a lie. I I thank God that every moment where I'm not right in the center of integrity, that I've not fallen to my death. But the text tells us that Ananias and Sapphira have lied to the Holy Spirit. And how many of us have lived lives that were not fully true before God or before our neighbors? So it's with these questions in mind, what I want to do today is start with the sort of wider angle perspective about God. We're going to do the work of theology. And theology is just a fancy way of asking the question, what is God like? We say this often around here, but the most important question that we can both ask and both answer with our lives is what is God really like? If the reality is, from our story in Acts 5, that God kills people for things like lying, then we should be terrified indeed. You see, the way that we perceive God will influence every piece of the way that we live life in the world. And this is actually what we see in the earliest church. They have experienced the resurrection of Jesus. They have experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they completely reorient their lives because of this experience. The end of this passage in verse 11 tells us, The church was seized with great fear, and all who heard these things were afraid. And so we have to wrestle with these different angles today. So first, what in the world is going on here? Is God just dropping people in the middle of the church for lying? Are we really just sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards so famously preached, and Jonathan Edwards is buried in Princeton and has a profound impact on this space here yet today? I, I don't think that's what's going on here, and I, I want to unpack that a little bit. First, Peter asked the question in the passage to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land. Peter says that Satan has filled Ananias' heart. This same phrase is applied to Judas in Luke's gospel. Acts is also written by Luke. Now, I know some of you like horror movies, but they're just not for me. I don't even like commercials for horror movies. But the horror movie trope of Satan filling a person's heart like possession, like the exorcist, is not what's in mind here. The Bible certainly describes people being possessed, and we're not often given the genesis of those situations. Jesus comes in Mark's gospel, proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of heaven, and then immediately proceeds to confront the forces of spiritual darkness and cast out demons. But we're never told what the genesis Of those possessions is, but that's not what's going on here. Ananias, like Judas, has let Satan fill his heart by constantly resisting the love and purposes of God. Ananias, though he was a part of this vibrant community, has been hardening his heart. He's been allowing himself to not be attuned to the voice of God that is guiding this community. The story that comes directly before this story, our story in Acts 5 for today, is a story about a man named Barnabas. And, and Barnabas, like Ananias and Sapphira, sold a field. But instead of holding back some of the proceeds from the sale, he brings all that he made from the sale and lays it before the apostles. And Barnabas, before he did this, had a different name. He was called Joseph, but they rename him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he's given great honor and esteem by the church. Now, who among us hasn't been envious of the attention and honor given to another person? For those of us who have spent time in the church, we see different gifts being honored, and elevated above others. This is a particular problem in the American church. If you can communicate well, or, or you know how to uh, be uh, you know, really personable in, in interactions with other people, or perhaps you can sing, we've elevated certain gifts. And I think so much of what Ananias and Sapphira are striving after here is the result of Barnabas' faithfulness. But what they miss What they miss is the life that Barnabas is doing these things out of. It's possible that Ananias and Sapphira coveted the honor that was given to Barnabas. And Luke placing this story about Ananias and Sapphira would suggest that their actions are a deliberate response on their part, seeking honor without integrity, and that they are a part of a pattern of a longer arc of resisting God. You see, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira woke up on the day that they sold the land and brought a portion of the proceeds to the apostles, woke up and said, you know, we're going to allow Satan to fill our heart today. No, I think, as often as we talk about these things being a slippery slope, is that slowly and subtly over time, they harden themselves to the mercy of God. And here's the thing about God's mercy. It never stops pursuing us. It never runs out. It is never exhausted. But the other side of that coin is that God has given us a measure of agency and free will to be able to resist his mercy. Is that we, in the hardness of our hearts, in our unfaithfulness, can stare in the face of God's faithfulness and say, no, thank you. That's not for me. C.S. Lewis, in his great, great allegory, the great divorce, describes exactly this process. He describes this as the epitome of hell. That we say to God, no thank you, and that God obliges. That God slowly and subtly, though he doesn't ever move away from us, we are never far from God. That God will allow himself to be in the position that we have placed him in. We see this ultimately on the cross. Jesus, comes to us, the fullness of love, the light shining in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome, but we still push Jesus out into the utter darkness. We condemn Jesus to be crucified, and though Jesus is active in that process, he is giving of himself. He is no mere victim. This is such an interplay of our freedom as humans. Allowing Satan to fill our hearts is not the product of a one-time decision. It's not simply lying at the wrong time. It is like erosion. It is a slow process of resisting God's love and mercy that calluses us. And the important thing for us to see, I think here, is that this passage never once says that God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. Their death is not the fed up eruption of an angry God in all his wrath. Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And this has often been seen as Jesus becoming sin and, and God not being able to look on sin. And I, I think some of that is going on. Second Corinthians says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. But what's going on here on the cross is that Jesus is taking the full weight of God's wrath. But I would argue that that wrath is not active. As if God is inflicting punishment upon Jesus, people have often reflected upon the violence of the cross and said that is a manifestation of the violence of God's wrath. And I don't think that's the case. I think that is a manifestation of the depths of human sin. And what we see on the cross is that Jesus, in becoming sin for us, God has removed his protective covering of blessing, and God has done this actively in order, in order to reconcile the world. And what we see on the cross is that Jesus with all of the the depths and depravity of human sin, with all of the just complete nonsense of death, with all that human systems have contrived in the the highest system of government, the highest system, uh, political system up to that time, Jesus is taking all of that ugliness and still turning beauty out of it. God himself has been pushed out into the darkness By the sin of humanity, which is the utter rejection of God. And yet, because of the love of God, the active self-emptying love of God, the kenosis of God, God, by emptying himself, by being rejected, is actually in that same movement, redeeming the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, it will not, and it cannot overcome it. Now, just to get a little theologically nerdy here, but this also demonstrates how Jesus' experience on the cross is undertaken and shared by the Trinity as a whole. You know, Christians have proclaimed this this great paradox, this great mystery that, that is so inexplicable and yet so beautiful is that God is one and yet three, Father, Spirit, and Son. And we often don't spend much time contemplating what the Father and the Spirit's role is at Calvary on the cross. God the Father experiences the sonlessness of the cross. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Jesus the Son experiences the fatherlessness of the cross. Again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Holy Spirit, that that inseparable distance between them, that distance that is always love and self-giving love becomes absence in that moment. Jesus on the cross manifests how God deals with death. God does not respond to his enemies by lashing out and killing. Rather, God takes on death and sin and the gravity of all of that on himself. So that how then... In Acts chapter 5, how is Peter able to pronounce this sentence over Ananias and Sapphira? Well, I think a couple things are possible here. First, it's possible that Peter has received a revelation from God. The Holy Spirit has revealed to him that God has responded to Ananias and Sapphira's continuous hardening of their hearts and has given them over to the consequences of their sin. The weight of sin is death. God enacts grace when we don't die as a result of any of our sins. And so it's possible that Peter just sees the situation for what it is. The second possibility is that Peter is misusing divine power. Greg Boyd suggests this as a possibility because he looks at the, the scope of leaders, specifically in the Old Testament. If you have read the Bible, there's in the book of Numbers, Moses has this really bad response in a moment. It, it's, it's really unclear what, what Moses is being judged for, but instead of following God's leading, which was Moses' general mode of operating. In this moment, Moses strikes a rock and tries to take matters into his own hands. And and it's seen that God judges him for this. God says, you will not enter the promised land with your people. And this, again, seems like a harsh punishment But why I don't think that Peter is in some way misusing this apostolic authority that he's been given. You know, Jesus says that whomever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. Whomever you don't forgive will not be forgiven. And and that's certainly something that we have to wrestle with. But I don't think that's what's going on here. And here's why. In Acts, Peter is never uh, taken to account for somehow misusing his authority. Uh, and so if Peter were acting out of a place, out of improper uh, use of his authority, his God-given authority, then I think that would be referenced later like it was with Moses. But Luke is honest about the shortcomings of the church. And it would seem that that a misuse of power this severe would warrant some acknowledgement on Luke's part and repentance on Peter's part, but well, we don't see that. So my interpretation of this passage is that Peter just simply sees the reality of what's going on. That because Peter is in tune with the voice of God in this moment, that he sees what the outcome will be. And what we've been doing up to this point, and I hope it's been helpful, is just asking, what is God like? And not trying to massage the the, the very uh, rough edges of this story in order to make ourselves feel better what we've tried to do is take the whole scope of the scriptures and just said, how do we make sense of something that seems so out of character? Like, if you had saw one of your loved ones, you know, and you saw them doing something incredibly illegal, like, your first question would not be, well, like, how do I, how do I make sense of this illegal thing they're doing? Your first question would be, like, that's not, it's not in line with their character. What, I wonder what else is going on here? And all we've been doing up to this point is Theology. And theology is just a fancy word of asking, what is God like? And when we ask the question, what is God like, as we've talked about, we also ask the question in one and the same breath, then who are we? You see, if God is prone to outbursts of killing, even in his profound holiness, we should live in terror. There's this great cosmic catch, a shadow side to this unbelievable grace that we've seen manifested in Jesus and in the earliest church. But I hope that we've established some important nuances in this text. and I, But I still think, even if we've been able to maybe put this text in a, in a more clear light, I think this text sounds a very serious warning to us as the people of God. What we see... In the behavior of Ananias and Sapphira should call us to reflection and to repentance as a people, especially a people in the American church, often a people of great relative wealth, especially compared with the rest of the world, and that it's often in our deployment of our resources, in our deployment of our wealth, where our refusal of God's mercy and purposes will feature most prominently. What we see is that the question of resources and what we do with them is nothing new because it is often the nexus where we are most being invited to trust God and to reflect His abundance in the world and at the same time where we are most tempted to hold on, to cling to scarcity. The story of Ananias and Sapphira echoes the story of Achan and Joshua. Achan disobeyed the divine mandate not to keep any of the treasures of Jericho and instead saw them, coveted them, and buried some of them under his tent. And Achan's sin was found out because it brought suffering on the whole community. The, the nation of Israel, as they're proceeding in the promised land, would proceed to lose a battle because Achan had disobeyed this one person's sin had caused them to fall into calamity. And we often, especially in our Western culture, our post-Enlightenment culture, we often vastly overestimate our own individualism. Achan's sin was found out. And it it ended not in him, and not just him, but his whole family being stoned to death. Again, uh, another story for another time that I wish was not in the Bible, but perhaps we could frame it in light of the cross. Jesus asks us the question in the gospels. He says, why do you worry? Why do you worry about what you will wear? Why do you worry about what you will eat? We see interactions with Jesus where he's saying, why do you worry about the honor that you're striving for, the position, the title? He says, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. They neither toil nor reap, and yet God feeds them. He takes care of them. He clothes them. Jesus says that the, the systems of this world are designed for those to succeed who grasp after power, but the kingdom of heaven is not like that. Those who wish to be first must become the last. Those who wish to be great must become the servant of all. And what we see in Acts is that even in the community where the Spirit of God has been poured out, there is still the possibility of resistance to God's voice, His leading, His invitation, and that resistance is most starkly manifested in our unwillingness to trust God with our resources. Our unwillingness to respond to the needs of our brothers and sisters with our very concrete and physical things. And it's so instructive to me that in the book of Acts, the first story that is indicative of how the people in the church fall short is about what they do with their money. And for us... What we do with our resources, what we do with our money is often the most glaring testimony of whether or not we are allowing God's voice into the crevices of the everyday moments of our lives. The story that Acts is telling is that, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh flesh. And that this is the testimony that we are living in the last days, that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, has inaugurated a new day, the day of the future where we, as the people of God, right here in our time, our place, can live out of the wealth and inexhaustible resource of that future because that future is the fullness of God's love that he has for every one of us. Acts 4 verse 32 says, Now the whole group of those who believed, the earliest church, were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private possession or ownership, but everything they owned was held in common. The church was of one heart and soul. They were attentive to the presence and voice of God in their midst, and so they responded when there was a need. This is so important for us to realize. The point of the earliest church Sharing their possessions was not necessarily the communal nature of the property, but the response in love to the need that would arise among them. Husto Gonzalez says, Commonality of goods is not an end in itself. The mission of the church is not to practice such commonality, but to practice love. What Husto Gonzalez is saying is that love dictates the, the practices of a community. And oftentimes, what that love will dictate is that we share our stuff, that we give of our resources. First John chapter 3, verse 16 says, we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Jesus loved us concretely. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and our practice as a people is to love not just in word or in deed, but with presence with action with our stuff and Jesus has invited us into his way his life into his way of loving and this is a momentary awareness of God's presence Jesus was completely saturated with the presence of God and that is what he has opened up to us his divine life shared with us and he's inviting us to practice as he did the willingness to be obedient and attentive to God's voice And the question for us today, Ecclesia, is not, are we willing to try and recreate the earliest church? The question for us is, are we willing to listen for God's voice? And are we willing to respond when God's voice says, your neighbor needs what you have? What we see here are two diverging paths There's the way of joyful trust and sharing, which multiplies, provides, and brings life. And then there's the way of Ananias and Sapphira, the way of scarcity, of hardening our hearts, of shutting our ears to the voice of God, which only brings death in the end. Paul says it this way in Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The language that Paul uses here illuminates our story so well. A wage is something earned, something that you have to strive after, something that you have to exhaust yourself for. And what Paul says is that the wages of sin, the wages of trying to carve your own way in the world, the wages of trying to say, I have built this life, I made it all for myself and so I'll do what I want with my resources, the wages of trying to grab honor, of grasp onto something that God has not given is exhausting and fruitless work that leaves you enslaved and ultimately leads to our demise. And yet, there is another way. Jesus has paid our debts. He has given of himself on the cross. And in giving of himself completely, in his cross, pouring out his love, there is a resurrection on the other side of that. Jesus shows that when we give ourselves completely, there is no exhaustion of God's resources, that there is a resurrection that awaits, that God's love will be poured out anew and new life will be brought forth. Jesus says, just receive what I've given for you and trust me. He asks us the question, all of us in Matthew 11, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Ecclesia, may we be a people who reflect God's abundance by what we do with our stuff. May we be a people who are attentive to God's voice. He has this invitation for us to live freely and lightly, out of his abundance, not out of our scarcity. May we lay hold of this today. May we say yes to him today. Grace and peace to you.